0: This is AQR's The Curious Investor, a show that breaks down some of the most important ideas in finance to help us make better investment decisions. I'm Dan Villalon.
1: And I'm Gabe Figali. Today, we're talking about commodities, trend following, and some turtles. First, we'll hear from someone who focuses on things like copper, natural gas, and soybeans.
2: Hi, I'm Carolyn Sasseville. I head up commodities research here at AQR.
0: We'll also talk to one of the early adopters of trend-following strategies. Well,
3: hello. I'm Bill Eckhart. I've been a futures trader all my life, and I'm the CEO of Eckhart Trading Company. Let's start by figuring
1: out what exactly a commodity is. Carolyn Sassaville likes to group them into three categories. First, there are energies.
2: There's a number of assets like crude oil, crude oils of different grades— Uh, Thinking also about the refined products like gasoline and diesel for your car and also natural gas. And then
0: there's metals like copper, aluminum, nickel and zinc. You also have the precious metals like gold, silver and platinum. And finally, agriculturals.
2: It includes a lot of the cereals like corn and wheat and also including things like cocoa and cotton and coffee and livestock.
1: And pork bellies, too, right? In my head, that's the most famous commodity.
2: I think pork bellies stopped trading in 2011, which is kind of funny because I think it's the go-to of everybody. Like, when you say commodities, (laughs) they're like, yeah, you trade pork bellies? (laughs) It's like, not since 2011.
1: (laughs) Now, a big question is, how do you invest in commodities? Well, that really depends on how you plan to use them. Say I sell animal feed and need soybeans for that. I'd obviously have to physically go out and buy soybeans. But what if I'm an investor who just wants soybean exposure?
2: You probably don't want to just buy a bunch of beans, stick them in your backyard and see what happens and see how much is left after, after a month. I mean, you may want to, but <laughs> probably not the best investment strategy. So for people who just want the investment in commodities, a much more convenient thing to do is to invest in a futures contract.
1: Futures can also be used to express a negative view on a
0: commodity or to hedge out exposure to a physical commodity. But futures aren't forever. Futures contracts expire after a certain period of time. Some are monthly, others last for three months, and so on. And commodities futures expire in different
1: ways, too. A lot of futures contracts demand physical delivery of a commodity, so you have to close out or keep rolling your futures exposures.
2: If you forget to close your position, you may suddenly be in a position where you have to take delivery, or you have to make delivery of all of these soybeans.
0: The reason you get rewarded for investing in commodities isn't as clear as for other asset classes. You know, when it comes to stocks, the story is pretty straightforward. You own a share in a company. And if you think that company will do well, you expect to make a return. And bonds, they're basically a loan. If the borrower doesn't default, you should make a return on that. But the stories for commodities aren't as obvious. A common one is that because commodities are a finite
1: resource... Their price goes up because of diminishing supply. But that's not exactly true.
2: Suppose that there's a near-term concern that you're going to run out of a commodity. The market would presumably know about it. So if you're an investor in the futures contract, that should already be reflected in the futures curve. So you wouldn't necessarily expect to get positive returns.
0: But let's say a commodity does get scarce. That still doesn't make it a wise investment.
2: An example of this is in the 19th century, whale oil was actually pretty widely used in oil lamps. And then there came a point where the whales became scarcer and scarcer. It became hard, they became harder to capture. It became costlier to capture them. So the supply went down and prices went up. And so when cheaper alternatives came to the market, the demand for whale oil went down.
1: And there isn't a lot of whale oil around these days. History tells us people are pretty good at
0: finding substitutes. So why should investors expect a positive return from commodities?
2: One possible explanation is hedging pressure from the producers. And that's certainly not a new idea. It goes back to the work of Keynes and Hicks in the 1930s. So the idea is that that producers have a high concentration in commodities so they can diversify away the risk that commodity prices move against them.
1: Producers have a natural long position by holding their physical commodity. Now, if they want to hedge that risk, they could take a short futures position in that commodity.
0: And that way, if prices drop, they're somewhat protected. But you could argue that there are also natural buyers of commodities. Take a manufacturer. They need to buy raw materials to make stuff. Their risk is that the prices of commodities go up. So they'd go long commodities to hedge that risk. But compared to producers, consumers might not need that protection as much.
2: They may have less of a desire to hedge because they tend to be more diversified. So for them, the commodity may be one, of many other assets that they need as an input to production. So you have this market where you have the producers, you have the consumers, they might both want to hedge, but the desire to hedge is likely to be greater from producers.
1: Net-net, demand from producers is likely to be the bigger driver of prices. Producers demand a hedge for their risk, so investors can step in to fill that demand by going long a future. And they should be compensated
0: for that. We've talked a bit about the difference between holding a physical commodity versus holding a futures contract. That choice carries some financial implications. One is called the convenience yield.
2: Having physical ownership of the commodity may provide some benefit that you wouldn't have if you simply had a future claim to the commodity. So for instance, suppose that you're long a futures contract that expires a few months out. Well, think about a producer producer of widgets that needs copper to produce those widgets. If that producer runs out of copper, then that's going to be disruptive for their process. And the fact that they would have, let's say, a long position in a futures contract for a few months out, that's not going to help them resolve this issue. The only thing that can help them avoid this disruption is having the commodity on hand.
1: If it's more convenient to physically hold a commodity today, the convenience yield will be higher. That has an impact on futures prices.
2: So when the convenience yield is high, typically it's the case that the price of the nearest to maturity contract is higher than the price of a futures contract expiring further out. So that's a state referred to as backwardation.
0: On the flip side, when the convenience yield is low, Later maturities of futures contracts will have higher prices than the nearest maturity ones. That's called contango.
1: Full disclosure, because it's such a cool word, we looked up the origin of contango, and it's way less interesting than you might think. It's based on the
0: idea of continuing or contingent. But if you're a futures investor, which should you prefer? Backwardation, where near prices are higher than prices farther out? or contango, where near prices are lower. There's
1: something intuitive about investing in a commodity future when it's backward-dated. Here's an example. Let's say you invested in a copper future that matures in three months. If it's backward-dated, it'll be cheaper than, say, a copper future that expires tomorrow. Well, let's assume that the price of physical copper doesn't change. If all you did was buy that three-month future and held it for three months, you should
0: earn a return just for doing that. This source of return is called the carry. It's basically the return attributed to the yield of an asset. In stocks that would be something like the dividend yield, and in bonds that would be something like the coupon. In commodities, your carry is related to the convenience yield.
2: So people um sometimes think that if the carry is positive, that means positive return, so they should only be investing in commodities when Uh, When the carry is positive, but they should be cautious about doing this because while carry is informative about commodities futures returns, it is a noisy indicator.
1: One of the main reasons why it's a noisy indicator is because carry is what you make assuming the underlying price doesn't change. And we all know that the
0: underlying price of a physical commodity can change a lot. If you buy a copper future three months out and hold it, but the price of copper plummets you'll probably suffer whether or not the futures curve is backwardated or in contango.
1: Carolyn and her AQR colleagues wrote about this in a paper called Commodities for the Long Run.
0: It finds that carry matters, but less than you might think. And there's another reason to be careful about timing a commodities investment. And that's the effect of the broader economic environment, which is notoriously difficult to forecast.
2: So what we find is that even after conditioning on whether the curve is backward data or contango, we find that the economic states of the world are really important drivers of returns. So being even more specific, when inflation is up or the economy is in expansion, we find very strong and statistically significant returns even in contango states. So if you were to time your allocation solely based on whether the market is in backwardation or cotango, you may miss out on positive returns um, during those cases.
1: It's one thing to believe that commodity futures have long-term positive returns. But for investors, you'd ideally want to know if those returns are complementary to other things in your portfolio.
2: What we find is that commodities' returns tend to be a lot stronger when inflation surprises to the upside than when it surprises to the downside.
0: This makes intuitive sense. If the economy is booming, people might want to consume more, and manufacturers would need more raw materials to meet that demand. And as for the relationship between commodities and inflation, well, that might be a chicken and egg thing.
2: It could be the case that inflation is going up because of increasing commodity prices. So if you want the inflation hedge, what better asset to hold than what's actually driving inflation?
1: What all this means is that commodities can be pretty diversifying to traditional asset classes like stocks and bonds. And this low correlation isn't a recent phenomenon.
2: We went back and got data all the way back to 1877. So, 1877 is when the Chicago Board of Trade started publishing their futures prices. Now, there can be a lot of time variation associated with that. There's certainly periods when the correlation is higher, periods when the correlation is lower. One example of where the correlation was much higher is during the global financial crisis. So, when that, when that happened, and a few years afterwards, we saw a much higher correlation between commodities and equities.
1: And since they had such a long data set, they actually found it to be similar in the Great Depression. But over the long run, data shows that commodities have a low correlation to assets like
0: stocks and bonds. And investors looking to get exposure to commodities have to do some homework. Because unlike for stock indices, there aren't cap-weighted benchmarks for commodities. Which means commodity indices can vary a lot.
2: Uh, one really popular one is the S&P GSCI Commodity Index. That's an index that's very energy intensive, so it's not a very well diversified index. If you look at that index, uh, the volatility tends to be around 18 to 20%. Now, if you look at another popular index, which is the Bloomberg Commodity Index, that's a somewhat more diversified commodity index, and the volatility tends to be more around 15%.
1: You could construct an index to be even more diversified. You could equally weight different groupings of commodities like energies, metals, agriculturals. Different commodity sectors tend to be lowly correlated to one another. So an overall index like this might have an even lower volatility.
2: So definitely when you talk about the volatility of commodities, it depends on how you're constructing your commodity index. Right, so like if it's
1: all pork bellies. <laughs>
2: <laughs> then, then your volatility would be zero right. since 2011. Got <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: some old pork belly. No, yeah, right. just
1: disgusting pork belly <laughs> just sitting around. <laughs> you have to
2: think about the spoilage rate. Right
1: That's <laughs> a good point.
0: We've talked about getting long exposure to commodities, essentially passive exposure, but many investors actively trade commodities. Some try to beat the indices we mentioned. Others go long and short to try to generate uncorrelated returns. One of the most popular ways to actively trade
1: commodities is through trend following. Essentially buying assets that have gone up and shorting assets that have gone down. And while some investors do this only in commodities markets, others use multiple asset classes. An example of this is managed futures.
2: Managed futures refers to an active investment strategy that invests in a diversified set of liquid futures and forwards. So it can be currency forwards, fixed income futures, or commodities futures. And it invests long, short in individual assets.
0: The explanation for why managed futures, or trend-following, works is similar to momentum, which we covered earlier this season. And these days, trend following is a pretty well-known strategy. But that wasn't always
3: the case. You know, in the 70s and the 80s, I was a technical analysis. That was considered crankish. It was considered like, you know, being a tea leaf reader. So I didn't really have any good competitors.
1: That's Bill Eckhart, a veteran futures trader and CEO of Eckhart Trading Company. He and his childhood friend set up one of the most fascinating experiments in finance, the turtle traders. Before getting into that, it helps to know a little bit about Bill first.
3: I always had academic interests. When I was 12, I believe I asked for Euclid's Elements as a birthday present, which I received.
0: Did your parents or neighbors have any concern that a 12-year-old kid was asking for Euclid?
3: You know, I wasn't breaking windows. I wasn't shoplifting. (laughs) From an early
1: age, Bill noticed how noisy market prices were. This led him to be pretty skeptical of some of the investment practices he was seeing, particularly what the chartists
3: were doing. So it occurred to me that You can't really draw pretty pictures with a noisy process. So the chartists were seeing patterns in a way that weren't there. It was rather like what we see uh, in the clouds or cracks in the wall or something. You know, we're primed to be pattern recognizers, so we'll recognize patterns where there are none. Bill also found
0: an explanation for why some patterns seem to work better than others. They may have
3: worked a little because you would often trade when the market had broken out of the picture that you were drawing. So it was a breakout. So in that sense, part of that charting method was trend following. Fast forward to grad school.
1: Bill was working on his Ph.D. in math at the University of Chicago, where he decided to start trading full-time with his old friend, Richard Dennis.
0: By this time, Richard was already a successful commodities trader. He was known in the industry as the Prince of the Pit. And the Prince of the Pit and Bill Eckhart loved to
3: argue. We disagreed about almost everything. You know, not only in trading, but, you know, in politics, in art, music, I mean, uh, the meaning of life, whatever you want to call that. I mean, we ju- Rich was a philosophy major, you see, originally. That's kind of ironic. I was the math major, really interested in philosophy. He was the philosophy major, and we were both interested in futures. One of
1: these disagreements revolved around how easy it was to be a successful commodities trader.
3: Whether it could be reduced to simple rules, you know, cut your losses, let your profits grow, that sort of thing. And I was of the opinion that trading was, was more complicated than that, and that, you know, just a set of rules like that wouldn't work.:
0: And this debate led to an informal experiment. Bill and Richard wanted to see with real money whether people who weren't traders
3: could quickly become successful ones. We put two little tombstone ads. I think one in the New York Times and one in The Wall Street Journal two ads. Saying Rich dentist who really had a reputation at that time, wants to train some people to trade his proprietary money. We got thousands of resumes. And we did about 50 interviews, and in, in that first year chose about a dozen.
1: And they didn't want to pick people who were already traders. Richard had a sense for who might have the most potential.
3: It was a a strange group, you know. Rich asked questions like, what's the most dangerous thing you've ever done? What's the dumbest thing you've ever done? You know, stuff like that. He thought the best thing to do would be to find people with unusual life experiences. For instance, we hired uh, two card counters, you know, blackjack card counters, We hired a guy who had escaped from East Berlin.
0: They hired an accountant. They hired an attorney. They even took someone who worked on the game Dungeons & Dragons for a living. Ultimately, they were looking for people who were willing to take calculated risks. They called these newly minted traders turtles. Why
3: turtles? This is a little delicate. It's not mean. It's just a little absurd.
1: Bill and Richard had met with an entrepreneur who made a fortune
3: farming chickens and wanted to start a turtle farm. And it failed terribly. And turtle farm became a substitute for sort of a quixotic idea that probably wasn't going to work. But the turtle trader program did work, big time. You know, the markets were perhaps more favorable in the 80s than they are now. But practically every uh, one of the turtles, there were a couple of dozen, practically every one of them became wealthy. And then, um, you know, many of them continued and are, you know, wealthy traders today. The turtle program itself was a success. So I have to admit, even though I kind of opposed it, it did make a lot of money for a lot of people.
1: The turtle traders were given a set of rules that worked. And one reason is that it gave the turtles ways to fight totally normal human tendencies.
3: For instance, there's an old trader adage. It goes back at least to the 19th century, which says, you never go broke taking a profit. Now, I mean, I can understand how that's literally true. You don't go broke that minute. But in fact, that's how the majority of good traders go broke. So there's a tendency to hold on to losses, a human tendency, and to take profits. I've had people recommend this to me who've never made a trade, recommend this to me at parties and stuff. So you almost get the idea that they got this idea in the womb. The turtle trader's rules forced them to do the opposite of this. So what the system tells you is take your losses and let your profits run which very much goes against the human
1: grain. The turtle trading program was kind of like a predecessor to quant strategies today. Except instead of programming computers to trade systematically, Bill and Richard programmed humans. The turtles had some discretion,
0: but they were essentially following a system. And by following a systematic process, the
3: turtles were able to avoid some common pitfalls. Sticking to hard and fast rules protects you a lot from the emotional repercussions of your trading. It keeps you from being optimistic when you're winning and trading too big, from being pessimistic when you're losing and trading too small. If you're following your system and you take a loss, well, you don't like that, but you're doing your job. It's not as emotionally destabilizing. And for long-term trading, emotional stability is—it really is the sine qua non.
1: The turtle traders were given rules that in the 80s were pretty advanced. But don't expect to get rich trading by those same rules today. I, I mean,
3: things really worked more readily than they do now. Now, of course, there's not only a more informed public, but the, there's all this computerized research that's being done. And it's a lot harder. And that's because the competition is smarter. And one source of that competition? Well, Bill himself. I was changing from the turtles almost from the very beginning. And now, what is it, 30, 40 years later, I mean, practically everything is different. The only thing that's the same is, you know, I'm still obsessed with risk control. And I'm still mostly using price. In the early days, trend followers
0: generally stuck to just a few simple trends. But as investors like Bill did more research, they uncovered lots of ways to build a better strategy. And even though the implementation can get pretty complex, the underlying theory is familiar.
3: First of all, I think that diversification was the greatest financial idea of the 20th century. It mostly got downplayed. I mean, people want to get on the last things that's worked. You know, there's always this rush to the latest good strategy, you know, whereas, you know, diversification is a really powerful tool. But if we've got a market that's liquid enough, and historically it's responded to our technique, we'll we'll trade it. And that way we try to get the maximum diversification we can.
1: And diversification and trend following doesn't end with commodities. Today, many managed future strategies incorporate trends across a lot of asset classes, including currencies, in
0: fixed income, and in equities. Gabe, I think this episode is trending towards its end. We covered two strategies that for many investors are thought of as niche alternatives. But both commodities and trend following have more than a century of data behind them and decades of real investors pursuing them systematically. And even though they can be
3: rules-based, it's still helpful to have real researchers involved. The human element is, is absolutely essential. Think of it in terms of, like, medical diagnosis. I I would welcome a computer doing my diagnosis, but then I would like a human doctor to check it, you know? So you have the similar kind of thing. If we just traded mechanically and let ourselves sort of go to sleep, things could get out of whack. I mean, you need human supervision. On our next episode, we
0: talk about something that scares a lot of investors. Inverted Yield Curves. There is a saying, an inverted yield curve has predicted something like 12 of the last seven recessions. And in the meantime, if you found a substitute for pork bellies, let us know at curious at aqr.com. Thanks for listening, folks.
3: We'll catch you next time. We started calling it our turtle farm, you know, making light fun of ourselves. So then later when the subject came up, Rich said, well, no, no, actually, it was because Tom and I went to this alligator farm in Asia. And I said, well, what's the connection, you know? And he said, we couldn't have called the traders alligators. (laughs) So that's all I'll say. You can believe whichever story you like.
0: The views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants, as of the date indicated, and do not necessarily reflect the views of AQR itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, legal, tax, or other advice, and it should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The information in this
1: recording is based on current market conditions, which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. AQR does not assume any duty to
0: update forward-looking statements. The information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty, express or implied, is made or given by, or on behalf of, AQR as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of information contained in this recording. Any liability as a result of this recording, including any direct, indirect,
1: special, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2019, AQR Capital, LLC. All rights reserved.